Take your Bibles and turn with me to the passage that Andy just read, Romans chapter 7. Today we're going to talk about the threefold purpose of the law, as Paul explains it in Romans chapter 7. But I want to start with this, okay? So this will be just a quote to frame what we do today and what we're going to do next week as well. It's a, it's a great quote from Tim Keller. If you understand Romans chapter 7, then you understand this quote. Keller says this, when you become a Christian, you don't move from warfare to peace. You move from a battle you could not win to a new battle which you cannot lose. The differences between those is extremely important. The battle you can't win to now the battle you can't lose. Just as an illustration of this, just before the United States was thrust into the Second World War, the British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, he was despondent. I know I told you a few weeks ago that we essentially won the war at D-Day, but in Churchill's mind, the victory was actually won before that. Because in December of 1941, Churchill was in a bad place. England was in a tough spot. They were being bombed into oblivion by the German Nazis. The German U-boats were terrorizing the British Navy and their supply chain. They had lost battle after battle after battle. And they were fearing an, an invasion of their island, which hadn't happened since like the 11th century. So the war was not going well for them. But then came December 7th, 1941 a date which will live in infamy, in the famous words of FDR. After Pearl Harbor was bombed, Churchill called FDR to offer his condolences. And it was in that conversation that the President of the United States, FDR, told Churchill, the British Prime Minister, well, we're in the same boat now. We're in the same boat now. And Churchill, in his memoirs, he wrote later the following words. He said this, he said, no American will think it wrong of me to proclaim that hearing the U.S. was on our side was the greatest joy to me. England would live. Britain would live. The rest of the war was just simply proper application of overwhelming force. USA, right? And then Churchill says this, I went to bed and I slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. Why was this the greatest joy to Churchill, Pearl Harbor? Why did this date, which will live in infamy, lead to a good night's sleep for Churchill? Well, Churchill knew because of Pearl Harbor that the war had shifted in England. It wasn't a shift from warfare to peace. I hope you realize that. Actually, it, it was quite the opposite. The, the war got ratcheted up the shift was from a battle that he could not win to now a battle that he could not lose now that the Americans were in the war. So, back to my quote. When you become a Christian, you don't move from warfare to peace. You move from a battle you could not win to a new battle which you cannot lose. If you understand that statement, then you understand what it means to be a Christian. You get it. 
Now, listen, that's, that's an inspiring quote from Keller right there. That's an inspiring story. I wanted you to be inspired as we started this morning. Because to be honest, the passage that we're going to look at today, is, it's kind of depressing. And you might feel that along the way. It's all about the strategic purpose of the law and how the law will fail you. So you might be tempted to be depressed. Don't be depressed. Keep this quote in mind. When you become a Christian, you don't move from warfare to peace. You move from a battle you could not win to a battle you cannot lose. Okay? Everybody ready to get into it? Let's dive in. I'll give you three purposes for the law in Romans 7, 7 through 13. You can call these the three D's of the law. Okay? And here's the first one. The first one's not going to surprise any of you if you've been listening to me preach for the last year on the book of Romans. Number one, God uses the law to disclose our sin. God uses the law to reveal, to uncover, to disclose our sin. Paul says this in verse 7. Follow along with me in your Bibles. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Question mark? By no means. This is Paul's favorite way to negate one of his rhetorical questions. By no means. Paul talked about our death to sin at the end of Romans 6. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to righteousness, he said. Paul talked about our death to the law as well at the beginning of chapter 7. Y'all remember that? We're not married to the law. We are married to Christ Jesus. He's a better husband than the law. That was the point of last week's message. But Paul wants to be clear that the law should not be equated with sin. The law does not equal sin. The law is good. Sin is not good. What shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Are we sinners without the law? Yes. Yes, we are. We're just ignorant to our sin. It's not that the law makes us sinful. It's that the law exposes our sinfulness. It makes our sin utterly sinful. In Paul's case, it showed him how covetous he was. And coveting is key here, okay? Let me just drill down on this a little bit here, coveting. Because Tom Schreiner talks about this in his commentary on Romans. He talks about how, you know, a Jewish person, maybe somebody like Paul, you can can get through the Ten Commandments and check them all off and do okay. You know, commandment number one, check. Yeah, commandment number two, have you bowed down to any idols? No, check. I'm good. No adultery, check. No, I've kept the Sabbath, check. I call my parents every once in a while. I respect them, check. I'm good, good, good. God, I'm good. But then you get to the Tenth Commandment. And, and at the 10th commandment, your house of cards comes tumbling down. Because more than any other sin, the 10th commandment, you shouldn't covet, is a matter of the heart, right? It exposes the depth of your heart, things that people can't even see. You know, adultery, murder, honor your father and mother, those are, for the most part, outward commands. Actually, actually Jesus talks about how that even gets into our heart in Matthew 5. We're all condemned at the end of Matthew 5, by the way, with Jesus' words. But just set that aside for a minute. Let's just talk about the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment, more than any others, is expressly a matter of the heart. Do you desire someone else's stuff? Do you envy someone else's life? 
someone else's wife, someone else's house, someone else's gifts or talents or health or resources? Do you envy someone else's genes that allows them to keep off weight better than you do? I've been guilty of that. Do you envy Gary Goles' ability to play the drums? Envy comes up in me with all the musicians, by the way. Don't tell them that. It'll give them a big head. But it's true. I want to play the bass like Amy Goals. I do. And I can't. What Schreiner says that even if you make it through the first nine commandments, which you can't, by the way, unscathed, you'll never make it past the 10th commandment. We all stand guilty before God by the 10th commandment. It's not just us. Paul confesses that here himself. This is autobiographical for Paul. If Paul's guilty of this, you can rest assured we're all guilty of this. Paul says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. Was Paul a coveter before the law? Yes, he was just an ignorant coveter. Now he knows that about himself, which is good, but that's not the solution. The law can't save him. It just points out sin. Let's keep reading here. Look at verse 8 in your Bibles. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead or dormant. This verse is very similar to what I said about the law last week, if you remember. We see that sign as we're driving, 70 miles per hour. How fast do we drive? 75 or whatever we can get away with. The sign says, keep off the grass. What do we do? We lie down on the grass and we use that sign to hang up our clothes. Somebody tells Augustine, don't take those pears. What does he do? He takes the pears. He doesn't even like pears. He doesn't even want to eat them. In fact, if you read that book, Confessions, he he throws the pears to pigs. He doesn't even want them. Why did you steal them if you didn't want them? Because somebody said, don't take them. Now I want them. forbidden fruit is the sweetest fruit, right? At least for a while. Doug Moo says it this way in his commentary on Romans. You can read this on the screen. He says, it was only after the Israelites had heard the commandment not to make idols for themselves, Exodus 20, verse 4, that they had Aaron fashion a golden calf for them to worship. Exodus 32, just a few minutes later, after they got this law, In just this way, the law abused by the sinful tendency already resident in every person has been instrumental in stimulating all kinds of sinful tendencies. So when Paul says, apart from the law, sin lies dead, that doesn't mean that sin didn't exist before the law. Paul makes that clear in Romans 5. The idea here is that sin was dormant. Sin was a sleeping monster. Sin was lifeless and latent in his life before the law. Now the law has awakened, as it were, a sleeping giant that he's got to deal with. In Pilgrim's Progress, that great book, John Bunyan, here's how he allegorizes this. There's a scene in the book where interpreter is leading Christian through these different rooms, and he leads Christian into a parlor. And the parlor symbolizes Christian's heart. And there's dust everywhere on the floor of this parlor. And that dust is a symbol of sin. There is sin in his heart. There is dust in the parlor. What, what do you think symbolizes the law 
in that book. It's a broom. And so the law starts sweeping up the dust and it starts spreading around the room and it gets so thick in the room that Christian can't even breathe. So does the law save us? No, it just exposes the dust in our room. It just, it's just as ineffective as of getting the dust out of the room. It just stirs it up. It exposes the sin in our hearts, but it's ineffective about getting it out. Let me give you another illustration here. This illustration might give some of y'all nightmares tonight, but I'll risk that. Imagine yourself sleeping in a room full of rattlesnakes. Can you imagine this? Are you thinking about this? And these snakes are sleeping and hidden throughout your room, and at some point they're going to strike you dead. But they're dormant right now. And you're able somehow to avoid getting bitten by them. Well, all of a sudden, the law knocks on your door and opens the door and says, Hey, don't you see the snakes in the room? They're going to kill you. No, I don't see the snakes. And then the law starts to poke and prod these rattlesnakes. And now you don't just have dormant rattlesnakes in the room. You've got rattlesnakes that are awake and angry. Thanks a lot, law. Thanks for pointing that out. Ignorance is bliss. Now, did the law do you a favor? Yeah, kind of. Kind of. I mean, it pointed out the snakes, but you need more than the law. What you need is the Pied Piper. To, to get those snakes out of there. There is a Pied Piper, by the way. I'll talk about him in a moment. Christopher Ashe, he illustrates it this way. Y'all can read this on the screen as well. He says, imagine a man sitting in a room tied to a sleeping monster called sin. He is, in a precarious sense, alive while the monster dozes. But then the commandment enters the room and says in a loud voice to the man that he must kill this monster sin. What happens? Surprise, surprise, the monster wakes and doesn't want to be killed. If it's your life or mine, says the monster, that's an easy choice. And so the man dies, killed by his own monster, awakened by the law. The man thought the authoritative voice telling him to kill the monster, sin, could actually kill it and enable him to live free from sin. Instead, it just served to wake up the monster who showed him who was boss. We need more than the voice of the law to set us free from the slavery of sin. We need a sin slayer. We need someone who can slay that monster, not just expose it. So let's be clear here. The law is good. It's not sin but it awakens sin inside of us. Write this down as number two. God uses the law to disclose our sin, but also God uses the law to demonstrate our helplessness. God uses the law to demonstrate how helpless we are. Paul says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, let's just be clear about here. Paul was raised in a Jewish home, so he didn't know life apart from the law. But when he was a kid, you know, the law, the law was like wallpaper on the home. It was everywhere and it was nowhere. It was so ubiquitous that you, you really didn't even notice it. 
notice that it existed. It's just there. It's just like the air you breathe. Well, in Jewish culture, when you turn 13, you have this thing called the bar mitzvah. Bar is the Aramaic word for son, and mitzvah is the word for commandment. So a 13-year-old boy in Jewish culture becomes a man through this bar mitzvah ceremony. And when you're, when you're bar mitzvahed, when, when you go through that, you don't become a son of God. Like, like we talk about in, in Christian language, when you get saved, you become a son or daughter of God. In the Jewish culture, you turn 13, you, you get indoctrinated with the law. You get this ceremony which makes you hold to the law, and you become a bar mitzvah. You become a son of the law, a son of the commandment. That's, that's who you are now. And so Paul, he's looking back on this. Ignorance was bliss back in the day, but then then it became aware of it, the law, and it became like an albatross around my neck. It was killing me. I was once alive apart from the law, but now, you know, it's like that broom sweeping up the dirt. It's circulating and, and, and suffocating him. But when the law came, sin came alive and I died. When it came into my life, it was like awakening a monster within me. Look at verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to me, proved to be death to me. Now, we've got to be careful here about the law and how we understand it. The psalmist says this. You can read this on the screen. He says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all of the day. Psalm 119, verse 97. Psalm 1 verse 2 says, blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. There is a delight that's associated with the law. It just can't be the delight unto salvation. Leviticus 18 verse 5, I think this is what Paul's referencing actually in verse 10. He says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Paul even writes later in Romans 10, verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. The problem is that the law promises something that it can't deliver. That's the dilemma that we find ourselves in. Let me just give you another illustration, a literary illustration. You guys, you guys remember Lenny from Of Mice and Men? Lenny is like the law. He's got a heart of gold, and he loves the bunnies. But he doesn't know his own strength, and he kills the bunnies. He's, you know, he's got a heart of gold. He's got good intentions, but his, his strength kills those bunnies. That's what the law does. It, it, you know, Paul says this in verse 11. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the law, through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. I said, Pastor Tony, there's a lot of killing going on here. This is depressing. Is there any good news in this? Yes, this is the good news. This is the good news that the law will fail you. You've got to get this. When you become a Christian, you don't move from warfare to peace. You move from a battle you cannot win to the battle that you cannot lose. You've got to transition that. You've got to come to terms with the battle that you can't win on your own. You've got to reach the end of yourself before you can find a better way. You've got to lay your deadly doing down. No more doing to save myself. There's got to be another way besides the law. You've got to stop looking to the law or to legalism or being a nice person for salvation. I've been reading this book there's no baseball on, so I'm just reading, reading, reading all the time right now. No baseball, no basketball, no football. There's nothing. 
I guess I'll just keep reading. I've been reading this book. Great book, by the way. It's called The Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story. It's the best book I've ever read on American history. I'm not hyperbolizing. I'm serious. It's, it's that good. So go read it. Quit watching the news at night. It'll just depress you. Go read this book instead. It's inspiring reading about American history. Well, I, it's, it's not about the book, really, this illustration. I heard an interview with the author of that book and that picture. His name's Wilfred McClay. And he gave this interview, and he said that when he was a kid in Sunday school at, I don't know, United Presbyterian something or other, some liberal denomination, I can't remember. He said this, this was the message that he got when he was in Sunday school. This is what his teachers taught him. It was this. Jesus was nice, and then he died. So you be nice too, little boys and girls. That was the message. Did y'all get that? Jesus was nice, and then he died, so you be nice too, little boys and girls. I was, I was listening to this in the car, and I, I, was, I laughed out loud, thinking to myself, do people really teach that? Is that really something that happens in Sunday school? That is ridiculous. That is such a crock if you read the Bible. You know what that is? That's just warmed over legalism. Instead of legalism for little Jew- Jewish boys like Paul, it's legalism for little Christian, Christian boys and girls. Be nice, kids, because Jesus was nice. That doesn't do it. That doesn't deal with the sin inside of me. You know what kids need to learn? You know what kids need to be taught in children's ministry? That there is a monster inside of them called sin that needs to be killed. This is why I don't teach in children's ministry. This is a little too vivid. <laughs> But there is, boys and girls, there is a monster inside of you called sin, and you've got to kill it before it kills you. And do you know how you kill it? You don't kill it with niceness. It's like like taking a knife to a gunfight. You're going to get killed doing that, thinking that way. You're bringing a knife to a gunfight. You guys remember that scene in... You remember in Indiana Jones, I think it's the first Indiana Jones, where the guy's like swinging his sword. And Harrison Ford, what does he do? He just pulls out his gun and shoots the guy casually. That's you being nice to deal with your sin. You're going to get shot up. You're bringing a sword to a gunfight. So, okay, Pastor Tony, okay, we don't kill our sin with niceness. Got it. What do we kill it with? How are we saved from that monster inside of us? How do we move the battle from the one that we can't win to the battle which we cannot lose? How do we get there? I'm going to tell you before we're done. I am, I promise. But first, write this down as number three in your notes. God uses the law to disclose our sin. God uses the law to demonstrate our helplessness. And thirdly, God uses the law to destroy our self-reliance. God uses the law to destroy our self-reliance. I'm tempted at this point in the message, late, you know, late in the sermon here, to, to tell a joke. But Josh Gibson said after last week's joke, I'm not allowed to tell jokes anymore here from the pulpit. 
at least for a little while. So no jokes. But how about another illustration? Tony Evans says this. He says whenever he goes over to someone's house and that person has a dog, he can always tell whether it's a law dog or a grace dog. A law dog has its tail tucked underneath. Its master intimidates it. It's afraid of its master. It is a miserable dog. But a grace dog's tail is wagging when its master comes home because there's a relationship there. Point being, God wants grace dogs, not law dogs. But you know, the law, it it still helps us. God destroys our self-reliance in order that we can turn to grace. By the law, God destroys our self-reliance on the law so that we turn to grace, right? Paul says this in verse 12. Speaking of the law, he said, So the law is holy. It is. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Is the law bad? No. Does the law deceive me and kill me? No. Look again at verse 11. For sin, sin does the killing. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So sin through the commandment or through the law. The commandment, that's just one aspect of the law, just a synonym for the law here. The Mosaic law, by the way, in the Pentateuch has like 613 commandments. And so none, none of those individual commandments or the law itself is evil. They're all good. They don't deceive us or kill us, but they awaken sin inside of us. And then sin, seizing that opportunity, deceives us and kills us. So back to verse 12 here. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13. Did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. I like how the NIV renders this verse. This wording is stuck in my brain. It used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. That's what the law does. God uses the law to make sin utterly sinful. God uses the law to dispossess us of the notion that if I just try a little harder, if I just pull myself up by my bootstraps, if I just try to outweigh the good over the bad, I can save myself. No, you can't. The law shows you that sin is utterly sinful in your heart before the Lord. It's insurmountably sinful. By the way, you know, there's a sin, talking about kind of leading to salvation. That awareness doesn't go away after you get saved. That goes right in on into your sanctification. You just see more and more sinful parts of you that thank God. He didn't show it all at once or else you would have been so discouraged. You would have quit. You grow in the Lord. There's more sin. There's more cracks. There's more places where you weren't even aware how sinful you are. R. Kent Hughes, he said this once. You can read this up here. He says, every year as I grow in the Lord, I become aware that though I am born again and my sin is covered by Christ's blood, 
I am in myself thoroughly, disgustingly sinful. If that word disgustingly seems like hyperbole to you, that seems too too much, just wait. Just, just wait a little bit. It's probably because you're too young in the Lord. As you grow in the Lord more and more, you see that and you say, disgustingly? Yeah, that's, that's the right word. Because the more you walk with the Lord, the more the light of his word shines on the cracks of your heart and exposes sin inside of you, Sin you didn't even know existed. You see how disgusting it is. And there's, there's these parallel things that happen as you grow as a Christian. Some of you who have been walking with the Lord, you know this. You do grow sanctified. You do grow more like Christ. You do grow more holy. Paul talks about that. But at the same time, you grow deeper in your awareness of the depth of your heart and the sinfulness that is inside of you. The light starts to shine in all the cracks of your heart, and you're like, I'm more sinful than I ever knew, even as I'm growing in holiness. Are y'all, am I, are y'all, am I, are y'all with me? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Those of y'all walking with the Lord, and here's another parallel thing that happens. You grow more holy. You grow more aware of the, the, the potential for sinfulness in your heart. And you also grow more humble. And you also grow more thankful. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. You saved me. I am so disgustingly sinful. But you don't see me that way. You love me and you saved me. You grow more humble and you grow more thankful. Welcome to the Christian life. There's this great moment in the book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Y'all read that book? It's a terrifying book. Read it to your kids at night before they go to bed. (laughs) Just kidding. Don't do that. But you should read that book, and actually you should read it before next week because I'll talk about it a little bit more because I think there's some insight for us there in terms of Romans chapter 7. But what's fascinating about, and by the way, don't watch the movies. The movies are junk, okay? The book, the book is good, right? Here's what happens in that book. Dr. Jekyll creates this potion to release the wickedness inside of him. Because he, he knows there's this wickedness, and it's kind of keeping him from being productive. So he's like, I'll take this potion, I'll be good during the day, and I'll be bad at night, and that'll make me more productive as Dr. Jekyll. So that's what he does. And by day, he's Dr. Jekyll, this This mild-mannered scientist by night, he was his alter ego, Edward Hyde, who just embodies all of the wickedness and all the evil that's inside of him. And at the end of the book, when Dr. Jekyll realizes that Edward Hyde, his alter ego, is really, really, really wicked, way more wicked than he ever realized, he decides to stop taking this potion. He, He decides, I'm done with Mr. Hyde. Well, He actually finds out, too, that Mr. Hyde has killed somebody. He murdered someone. And so when he finds that out, Dr. Jekyll is mortified by this. So he quits the potion, and he decides, I'm going to do so much good as Dr. Jekyll, it's going to make up for what I did as Mr. Hyde. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to be, 
you know, nice to people. I'm going to be nicer than Jesus to people. I'm going to be good. I'm going to, I'm going to give my money away. I'm going to be generous. I'm going to express such goodwill to others that it'll make up for the evil that Edward Hyde did. So that's what he does. He's on this redemption project. And at first, the redemption project works. Dr. Jekyll's making up for his evil. But here's the turning point in the book. It, one day when he was sitting in the park, he was enjoying himself. And all of a sudden, as he looked out on the people in the park, he started comparing himself with other men. And then he started comparing his goodwill towards others with the laziness and the cruelty of those other men. And here's an actual quote from the book. And at that very moment of that vain, glorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, and the most deadly shuddering. I looked down. My clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs. The hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy. I was once more Edward Hyde. And the really scary part about that part in the book is he didn't even take the potion. And he turned into this monster again. Here's the point of that. Here's what I think Stevenson, the author of that, is getting to. There's a way to be evil that exposes your wickedness. There's a way to be good that exposes your wickedness. There's a way to be good and nice and better than everybody else. And before you know it, you're prideful and you're vainglorious and you're looking down on other people. Paul got through nine of the Ten Commandments and he thought he was good. Then he got to the Tenth Commandment. He's like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. And that commandment exposed him. Dr. Jekyll thought he was doing good, and that goodness led to pride, awakening the monster within him. You think you're safe from your sin. You think you can outdo your sin with righteousness in the law. It doesn't save you. It doesn't, in some ways, that goodness, that supposed goodness that you do, it awakens the monster even more inside of you. What are we going to do about this, Harvest Decatur? We're all messed up. Even when we do good, we're messed up. Can I, here's the answer. Okay, it's time. It's time for the answer. Can I just borrow a few verses from next week's passage quickly? Okay, I'm not going to preach it all week, all next week's message, I promise. But I want us to look at verse 24 and 25. Probably for the next two weeks, this will be the climax of what I'm teaching. Because what does Paul say in verse 24? Oh, wretched man that I am. Have you been there yet, Christian? Have you gotten to that place? If Paul is saying that, you better be saying that. Who will save me from this body of sin and death? Who is going to save us? You know what the right question is there? The right question is who. It's not what. What will save me from this? It's not a what. It's a who. Who is the who? Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? Amen, church? Who is going to save you? Who is going to save me from this body of sin and death? Even when we do good, there's wickedness in it. Who's going to save us? 
Jesus. Who's the Pied Piper that chases all the rattlesnakes away? Who's the sin slayer who kills the monster inside of me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord who saves me from this body of sin and death. Okay, let me close with this. Let me circle back to what I said at the beginning. Here's that quote again, okay? When you become a Christian, you don't move from warfare to peace. You move from a battle you could not win to a new battle you cannot lose. What's the battle you can't win? That's the battle against sin by obeying the law. You can't win that battle. That's like taking a knife to a gunfight. What's the battle you can't lose? That's putting your faith in Jesus Christ and allowing him to defeat sin in your life. Christ then becomes the basis for your justification, your sanctification, your future glorification. He wins the battle and now you can't lose. Now, does your faith in Christ lead immediately to peace? Not exactly, okay? It's, it's Pearl Harbor Day, all right? <laughs> We're in a fight here. We are. We're battling, battling, battling against sin, against the devil, against the flesh. We're, you know, you, us, the church, all of us, in Christ Jesus, we're battling, 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 battling. We're battling against sin. There's, there's something inside of us that's wicked. We're trying to destroy that inside of us by the power of the Holy Spirit that's inside of us as well. We're battling, battling, battling. We're battling in a battle that we cannot ultimately lose. That's where the victory is found. I can't lose this battle. So let's fight. I mean, Jesus Christ is better than the Americans in World War II. He will not fail us. And what can sin do? Kill us? So what? We die in this world? So what? We die, we win. We go home to glory forever. Amen, church. Let me invite our worship team to come up now. They're going to lead us in a final song. As they're coming up, let me just relay to you some lyrics that I used to sing when I was a little kid, okay? There was a song we sang called Victory in Jesus. (laughs) Y'all have heard it before, okay. It doesn't really translate to a modern worship style. It's kind of old school. But the lyrics are so good. And they go like this. I heard an old, old story. How a Savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sin and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him. And all my love is due him. By the way, that word ere, I used to think it meant there. It doesn't mean there. It means before. He loved me before I even knew him. The song's even better now. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. We don't sing that song here at Harvest, but we sing a song that's just as good. And we're going to sing it right now. It goes like this. To all who are the tired and the heavy laden, 
hope has come. To all who feel the weight of a broken spirit, hope has come. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your head. The power of our sin is dead. Why? Because he has won. Death is swallowed up in victory. Through the Son, the grave has lost its sting, its sting and its grip over me because he has won. Amen, church.